Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders, technology leaders in higher education, and most importantly, students. To chat on hot topics, share solutions, collaborate, and envision the future of higher education together. Let's illuminate higher education once and for all. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Kiran Kuritala. I'm the founder and CEO of End-to-End Services and the host of this podcast called Eliminate Higher Education Podcast. We have with us an esteemed guest with us today, Dr. Ronald Mason, the president of University of D.C. Dr. Ron Mason's history on leading historically Black colleges and universities starts all the way from his earlier pedagogy, but I'll let him explain his background and history. Dr. Mason, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Karen, how are you today? Good to see you again. Good to see you too. We go long, long way. I feel like the first time I met you was when you were the president at or the chancellor at the Southern University System in Louisiana. Since then, now you have moved to University of D.C. I, I know that your entire background is in higher education. I would like to hear like your story on why you committed yourself to higher education and specifically to HBCUs? Sure. So uh, just so you know, my entire background is not higher education. I'm a lawyer by training. And when I came out of uh, Columbia Law School, I actually organized poor people's co-ops in the South uh, for about four years. Okay. Um, From there, I ended up being general counsel and then senior vice president and general counsel at Tulane for about 17 years, Tulane University. And then I went to be president of uh, Jackson State University because, you know, I decided the first part of my career, I worked at a predominantly white institution and I made a decision I wanted to work at historically black colleges. And then I went from Jackson State after 10 years to the Southern System, which is where I met you. And that's been about 10 years ago now, as I recall. Uh, And I was at the Southern System and now I'm at the University of the District of Columbia and I've been here going on six years. So you touched on an important topic that will probably be a important concept that we'll probably touch upon in this. You said something about, I wanted to move from a white university to a historically black colleges and university. I want to understand a couple of things, you know, from a layman perspective, all universities are delivery vehicles for education. Why does it matter whether it's an HBCU versus a white college like you described? Yeah, so, uh, well, it's technically called a predominantly white institution and historically black colleges and universities, right? Uh, So when I was at Tulane, you know, we did did good work there, but the students there uh, really didn't need me that much. They were pretty wealthy students. And there were students that generally speaking went to Tulane because they couldn't get into Ivy League schools. And so they came to school in BMWs and Mercedes. I'm generalizing, (laughs) but there's, there's a lot of truth to that, right? But I did connect with a, the small number of, uh, his, of, of black and brown students there. And you know, to this day, they'll still come and tell me that they were happy that I was there. I was the first senior official at Tulane University who was black, and I'm also the last senior official at Tulane University who was black. And so it sort of tells you the kind of place that it was and the kind of work that I did. But the other thing is that it wasn't a wealthy university. But compared to every HBCU that I've worked at, it had a lot more wealth than any one of the historically Black universities. Because historically Black universities are basically institutional reflections of Black people in America. 
and the history of black people in America is that they've always been denied access to wealth. And so, you know, by the time I was, I guess, 47 years old, you know, I was pretty good at what I did. I knew how to run universities and I thought I'd take my skills and talents where there was a higher need. Uh, and sure. HBCUs are, are tough work, uh, but it's good work. And I've never worked as hard, but I've never felt as rewarded uh, as I have uh, since in my, I guess, 30 years now almost at HBCUs. That's great. So there's definitely two factors to a university and you, you talked about well, part of it is funding, right? Um, the funding from the regulatory body, state and federal government, but also the fact that the tuitions at HBCs are lower. When you compare, like you described, a predominantly white university with similar, let's say, let's ignore the social factor, economic. I'm sure there are some rural um, schools in, that are predominantly white that are comparable in terms of economies of scale, like an HBCU, how would they two compare uh, if you just take a predominantly white university without, you know, not very rich, if you for to put it mildly, and a predominantly black university? What are some of the factors that truly differentiate them? You know, that's interesting. There is actually a historically black university in uh, Kentucky, Bluefield State, that is predominantly white. But, but it could, because it was historically black, but over time, it was a rural university and most of the students were uh, poor and working class white people. Uh, and so in that sense, there's not a lot of difference. You know, poor people are poor people and uh, they, they too are on the outside looking in. Uh, the only sure. difference with uh, historically black universities, you know, is that black people have an extra layer of challenges that America has put on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, historically, Black universities were founded at a time when Black students could not go to any other university. Uh, and although they've never been segregated on the basis of race, they've had to struggle on because of their race as institutions and because of the students that they've served. But other than that, and that's not a little other than that, uh, but it's, sure. you know, poor schools are poor schools. And look, there's a lot of white schools out here that are struggling. You're right. Just like there are a lot of white people who are struggling out here but HBCUs and the black people that they are institutional reflection, reflections of have that extra layer of struggle. Yeah, I think that's that's what I wanted to peel the onion on a little bit to see what are, it's kind of an interesting paradigm shift, right? Because I think we can look at the fact that minority of predominantly white institutions are probably in uh, rural and economically disadvantaged area, while majorities of HBCUs are in rural slash economically dis and serving economically disadvantaged people. So, and a lot of times we have this false dichotomy. People always talk about saying, well, you know, if we just give everybody money, right? Uh, we'll just say everybody will have equal amount of money. Will that solve the racial inequality with respect to education, at least? We don't solve the racial inequality with respect to all the other factors which we want to talk about, but with education, if there's a magic wand you can throw and say, everybody will at least get $50,000 salary or something. Will that solve the disadvantages of HBCUs? Gee, man, I don't know. Salaries to the people working at HBCUs or salaries to the, the <laughs> graduates from HBCUs? Yeah, I guess the parents of students working at HBCUs. So, so my question I'm trying to get to is, how much of the socioeconomic factors are truly economic or how much of them are truly social? Or is it a mix of that? That's the question I want to get to. Let me see if I can explain it this way. 
the wealth in this country, 77% of it is owned and controlled by about 10% of the population. Yep. Which means that 22% has to be shared by 90% of the population. Okay, that's a lot of the population sharing very, very little of the wealth. And so, yes, if you were able to spread the wealth around more, we'd have a more equitable society. If you were able to spread it amount around more and remove the racial differences, it would be even that much more equitable, right? That's right. But the way it's set up, in order, there's a lot that has to happen in order for that few people to have that much wealth, right? It's an entire system at work that enables that to take place. And one of the parts of that system it, is that in that 90%, you know, it's, it's, it's what we talked about earlier. It's black people and it's white people and it's brown people. And they're all basically the same. But part of the way that system works is that it tells white people they're special. And although they really mostly are not privileged, right? They're just right. not oppressed. Exactly. It's black. a false sense of privilege, at least in 2020. In 2020. They, you know, like they have some advantages because they're white. Don't get me wrong. But the illusion they have is that they're more like the 10% that has all the wealth than they are like the 90% that they're actually a part of. And it's that illusion that causes the racial discord. Sure. We spend so much time fighting each other over race that we can't focus on the real problem. And the real problem is the 10% with, with yeah, the economy. 77% of the wealth. You follow me? Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely correct in the fact that there is there's a false dichotomy that while there's a racial divide um, and economic divide, both all races suffer with it, the same uh, racial di economic divide. Somehow the race kind of plays into that where like say white people, uh, if they, even though they are economically disadvantaged, they look at their race and think that, you know, they are better off than others. So I think that brings us to the real equalizer, if you will, right? I will, for all for the longest time, I've heard uh, Nelson Mandela's quote, I think I'm paraphrasing, of course, saying, education is the greatest equalizer. You know, I think we all ag agree that education is supposed to solve this racial economic divides, make we, uh, we the people more tolerant, more understanding of each other. But we still see, there's two things. We all agree that education is the greatest equalizer, but it is still a platform that is not accessible for people to want to get there. So it's an equalizer, but it's not equally accessible for everybody, regardless of their race, color, and economic position. As a president of UDC, how do you see that, you know, digital social economic divide being uh, disrupted in the 2020? So we've done a lot of thinking about that, right? About education and Really, we, we, we call it more the talent production pipeline, right? Sure. Because uh, all employers, employers keep complaining they cannot find talent. And we asked ourselves, well, you know, in a country that is the most wealthy country in the nation and supposedly the most advanced, you know, why are we not producing talent at levels that can satisfy the needs of employers? And so the way we look at it is that this system that's designed to concentrate wealth and we call it a system of white supremacy, okay, which concentrates wealth, gives advantages to white people, 
oppresses black people and in some people's minds is the natural order of things okay like white people are supposed to be supreme but that system actually destroys more talent than it produces because if you think about it uh, in order for it to work it has to make sure that the competition is rigged that the talent can is only recirculated at the top depending on where you're born and who your parents are sure the opportunity up there is only available to them. And so the talent at the bottom is not allowed to compete on a fair basis. And so that talent production pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. Clogged up at the top because it's not open up to, to people based on merit. It's right. open up to people based on birthright. And so you have to suppress the talent coming up through the pipeline. So by the time, by the time it gets to the top of the pipeline, there's mm -hmm. just enough to be able to fill the few spots that are available. And in this case, it's about one and a half percent if you're black and one and a half percent if you're brown that are available in that top 10% there. Did, that, did you follow that? No, I totally agree. But I think the concern I have with um, this idea is that, is it a systemic thing? Or is it a indirect thing that is causing this, right? For example, it's not like there's an overlord out there saying, I want to move this person because he's white from step A to step B. It's, that's not obviously, that's not happening. But there is a systemic thing that's occurring. Is it our racial bias or racial preference? So, because I was actually listen, reading this book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram, Ibram, Ibram L. Kendi. He actually, you know, I think I'll, I'll talk about it from my own personal experience because we were interviewing for office manager position at end to end. You know, uh, we had a person that's come in and uh, my the initial screening people, they basically said, you know, he sounds like a lazy guy. And um, I, this is the time when I was reading, uh, you know, Ibram Kendi's book. And I was like, that's a code, right? Uh, it's a code that we indirectly associate with African-Americans. And we basically say African-Americans uh, predominantly considered, you know, again, I don't subscribe to this. I don't agree to this, but African-Americans, some people think that African-Americans are incompetent or lazy. So the first time, next time I see an African-American, he's probably lazy. And the same thing goes with, you know, this predominant stereotype that they associate, positive stereotype, I guess, saying Indian guy, hardworking, technical, but there's a lot of hardworking, technical African-Americans, and there's a lot of lazy, incompetent Indian people. But we immediately associate that. And I think that's the system you're talking about. Until I read the book um, by Kendi, I really didn't understand how to solve the problem. So how do you solve it? You basically say, every time you look at an Indian and say, this guy is a hardworking technical person. You have to reverse that and say, maybe he's lazy, non-technical person. And the same thing goes with, if you see an African-American and every time you think that he's probably lazy or incompetent, you say, maybe he's hardworking, competent person. And you switch that distinction so that you give them that platform. Am I on the right track with on how to beat anti-racism, how to no. be an anti-racist or am I off track? Well, I, I, sure that helps. If we could get everybody to read the book, understand it, and uh, and practice it, right? Look, or subscribe to it, right? But I think the biggest issue that we have is people will say, "Well, you know, we're not ask stopping 
like in in the in one of the affirmative action concepts what they say is it's not like we are putting on the application that black people should not apply or brown people should not apply but that's not the standard like you can't just say you know we are we are way past that <laughs> well the cure is so deep you know there was a study done this was in the 90s that showed that uh, if you had a black sounding name on your resume the hr department automatically threw it out of the pile right and there was another study done by Purdue in 96 that showed that if a black man walked into the interview room, the heart rate of the white interviewers jumped 30 or 40%, okay? Right. And so there's just a lot of history here that, you know, it's not even on a conscious level, right? But there's also this. Right. Look, so 70% of America voted for Trump, right? Okay, 70% of America. And every white category of voter voted for Trump, except for young whites, and that was 40% of them, okay? And they did it for one of three reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Either because they wanted to make sure that wealth stayed concentrated in the hands of a few people, or they wanted to make sure that the advantages that white people stay in place, or they wanted to make sure that black people were, were, were out, right? right? Down and are out. Um, but but there was the seven of the 76 million that voted for Biden, right? Mm -hmm. The white folks in there, even if they want to see equity, right? When it comes to actually giving up the special advantages that their children have, mm -hmm. you know, for jobs, for school, for tutoring, for nice neighborhoods, you know, for sharing those sorts of things, that puts the reality of equity in a whole different frame of mind. Right. And so while I think theoretically, a lot of people want to do the right thing, when mm -hmm. it comes to the real world price of doing that right thing, I think that's a much bigger challenge, you know? Right. Uh, and I think ultimately it's because people really don't understand the damage done by that system is more than just damage to people of color. I mean, it damages the entire nation in so many different ways. I'm, I'm a little worried about some of the, because I, are we making, this is where I might, take a contrarian position, right? Yeah. So are we making the same mistake? Why is it, for example, like in 2016 when Trump won, I was thinking the same way you're thinking, saying, well, they must be liking white privilege. They must be hating people of other color. And 2020 kind of, I felt like there was a different, after actually, in fact, after reading Candy's book, I was like, well, I agree. I was being racist, you know, I as a person against African-Americans or even Indians without knowing by making broad assertions, I call it stereotype, pattern recognition, whatever bullshit names I assign to it. But are we making the same mistake about people who voted for Trump and ignoring their own systemic problems? Maybe, you know, yes, you know, I'm pretty sure a big part of that electorate is, you know, nationalistic, you know, maybe there are some racistic tendencies uh, in there, but there are some people that genuinely like the country and they think that, you know, Trump's way, our old way is made the country the better and we need to protect the old way. Like, yeah. how do you defeat that? How do you, I thought that education will solve those problems, but, you know, there are, like, there was a, there was a daily podcast where they talked about a Harvard person, a person who went to Harvard is subscribed to QAnon and she believes that, you know, I am a baby eating, Satan worshiping cannibal. 
Yeah. Like, how do you subscribe? Like, where, what happened here? Yeah, different things going on there. But the three things, the three reasons I describe people vote voted for Trump, those are the old ways. Right. And, and so, yes, they voted because they want the old ways, but the old ways are not in their interest. Right. And so education is the way to help people understand that there is a better way and attain an enlightened self of an enlightened sense of self-interest. I think that's really what the goal is right now. For um, the QAnon person, you, know, you probably know this better than me, but uh, I thought it was real interesting. I may have been the same article I read, but the woman never watched the news. She, right, only, she only watches Newsmax, Fox, yeah, and, and so she was, she was fed. She was she was getting a miseducation, right. right? And so she was acting based on the knowledge that she had. It was just bad knowledge. How do you fix people who make like education is good, but you need to be interested to learn, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, you know, I think you can't. You, you you can you can only bring the horse to the water, right? Right. And you have to have the water. Uh, and so we focus a lot of energy. I focus a lot of energy on just making sure that the what the truth is, mm -hmm. and making it simple to understand, and then making it available. Okay. Yeah. Now you know in the internet age, this is going to be for the next president to figure out, right? Right. Uh, there are ways, just like that woman was reading that particular part of the internet. Mm -hmm. She could just as e easily have been reading a different narrative. You know, the question she's making a willful choice to ignore reality to subscribe to fantasy, right? Well, she thought it was reality. Right. And think about this, though, Karen. Most of what we subscribe to in America is fantasy. America that we say we, we believe is not the America that we praise. Right? The America we live is a whole different country from the one that <laughs> we, we sing about. Right. Right? So... So let me switch to a lighter topic. It's not off topic, but it's worth uh, discussing because there are two sides to this coin. And uh, yesterday, last night, I was uh, chatting with my daughter. She's in Chicago with my ex-wife. And she was saying, uh, you know, my teacher is asking me to read uh, the To Kill a Mockingbird book. Uh, and we all hate it because, you know, they make this protagonist look like a great hero while all he's doing is doing the right thing. So, and then I said, you know, well, first of all, like, take a pause here. You have to look at the protagonist in the world that he lives in. And, you know, he's a hero when compared to where he was then, just like Abraham Lincoln was a hero, you know, in his time. And she was like, well, Abraham Lincoln was racist too or something. And I'm like, okay, take a pause here. And so the, the discussion unraveled into this, this discussion that we want to evaluate things like Tom Sawyer's Huckleberry Finn and say, well, there's an N-word there, so we need to cancel the book or Killing Mockingbird has this, you know, slavery under understory, so it's no longer good. Is that a right thing to do? I feel like that is only walking away from the real problem and not tackling it. So how do we explain to the kids that it's okay to understand the past in the lenses of the past, not in the lenses of the current story. Yeah. First, I agree with you that it is a part of the story and you have to put it in context. I mean, that's how history works, right? Look, I'm a great fan of the uh, Turner Classic Movie Channel. Okay. Uh, 
and well, but certain times of the day they show you know, old time movies with some pretty racist stereotypes of black people. Right. But if you but don't- That's just history, right? But they explain it on, on Turner Classic Movies. They put right. it in context, right? And so, uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of those, one of those stories you have to put in context. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big uh, cancel culture person and I am a big free speech person. Okay. I'd, I'd rather hear it, I'd rather put it on the table and I'd rather confront misinformation with fact and truth uh, as a way to, to, to bring everyone to a common self of enlightened self-interest. And so, but these young people, you know, it, you got to work with them because like you and I at that age, the first thing they want to do is, is fight, you know, and they right. want to attack it and march and which is fine, but they grow up just like everybody else. And it's important to give them the tools they need to understand as that, as that narrative goes forward. Yeah. It is hard. I mean, you're right, because I think it is at their age, I guess, it's very easy to look at world as a black and white or, you know, whatever color scheme that they subscribe to and say, this is good, this is bad, this is evil, this is truth, virtue, stuff like that. But understanding the nuances and understanding what we don't understand about the past is something we have to inculcate. So this brings me to the original discussion we had when you were in Southern University System about three-fifths concept, uh, where you, you talked about that. And the first time I heard it was from you. And I want to hear from you uh, firsthand on like what was your original idea when you were in Southern University System. And I want, you, I want to hear your new initiative as well. Sure. So much like we just talked about with your daughter, you know, even at my age, I'm still learning and understanding things, right? Mm -hmm. And so at uh, Southern, we talked about the five-fifths agenda for America. That's right. Uh, and that was a play on the three-fifths compromise, which is, you know, a good lesson in history there because it, 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 a little factoid for you, right? A guy sure. named Roger Sherman, right, was one of, the, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence that says all men are created equal, right? But most people don't know, only about four people who signed the Declaration of Independence actually signed the Constitution of the United States because huh. the Declaration was the vision, but the Constitution was the, the business plan, right? The business document. But Roger Sherman was one of those guys, okay? So he signed the Declaration of Independence saying all people are created equal, but he's also the guy that negotiated the three-fifths compromise, which said that slaves would only be counted as three-fifths of a human being, okay? And right. so, you know, that, that is the, the, um, the paradox of America. You know, Thomas Jefferson said, uh, you know, he, he, he wrote the Declaration of Independence and owned slaves. And he said, we have a wolf by the ear. We can't let it go because we have self-preservation on one hand, no, justice on one hand and self-preservation on the other. So they knew it was a dilemma there. Anyway, here's what I'm getting to. Sure. So the 13th uh, Amendment freed the slaves, right? Mm -hmm. unless you are a felon, okay? That was the compromise. You can still be a slave if you're a felon. Hmm. And the reason the South made sure that was in there is because they wanted to create this system at the end of the uh, slavery where basically they could arrest every black person they wanted to and turn them into slaves by putting them in jail, right? But that's exactly what happened. You know, they, they had the same system, except now they'd arrest them, put them in jail for five years and then the jails would rent them out to the plantations, okay? Sure. 
and there's a book uh, called uh, Slavery by Another Name. If okay. You want to check it out, right? And The Color of Law is also really good too. The have, I'm not sure if you read The Color of Law book. Yeah. yeah, that's a book that is kind of, uh, it talks about the history of how the persecution created a system of new form of slavery, where if you're incarcerated, you can't get decent jobs, you can't get a decent job, you're working that's, that's in the plantations version. or everywhere else. Yeah, modern version of that, right? Another yeah. good one is um, Michelle Alexander, uh, The New Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow, yeah. So anyway, back to your question. And so the Five Fifths Agenda was about, the, the theme was making America whole by reclaiming and developing black male human capital. You know, sure. the program focused on young black men who were predicted to fail and helping them get through college and, and, and beyond and become teachers. And they had centers for undergraduate student achievement that are still there down at Southern. So, you know, we'll take that. But then after that, you know, this is when I came to realize that it's, it's kind of silly to talk about equity and equal opportunity as long as this system of white supremacy is in place. Sure. Because by definition, you can't have equity. It, right. it can't allow equity. And so that's why you see, that's why nothing changes. Because as long as that system is there, you're still gonna have the wealth gap, you're still gonna have the racial oppression and your, your public school systems are still gonna not educate people because they cannot be allowed to be educated. And right. so that's where I am now. That's where the work took me on this uh, institute that I'm that I'm that I'm trying to put together, I should have a website out by mid March uh, called. Uh, check this out: the mm -hmm. domain name whatiswhitesupremacy.org was available. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Didn't that sound? Right? I guess nobody <laughs> wanted it. <laughs> right, nobody wanted it. Right, and so so we're going to put up that website, and it's sure. just information, you know, about what it is and what it does, and then. We'll, we'll plan the institute and roll it out in about a year, probably. So uh, you said something about the Declaration of Independence that was interesting, because I think I feel like that is kind of the foundational problem we have, whether it is self-preservation versus justice. Is that what's driving the system of today? Is there some you know, unconscious self-preservation that's saying this worked for us right now? So let's not mess with it. Is that like the unconscious bias or is there conscious bias? Because I'm, uh, I'm not able to understand. Like, so when you say what is white supremacy, right? So my question is like, just to be fair, like I came to United States in 98, I did my master's here. You know, I started, I did a lot of consulting work, worked with several universities, you know, we're predominantly white, predominantly black, you know, Ivy, Ivy League schools also and otherwise. And, you know, I haven't seen anything conscious or unconscious with respect to my dealings, whether it's with partners, customers, or even universities. That's why I feel like I might not have seen it because I've expected it. It's possible that I said, oh yeah, they didn't treat me. They, they weren't rude to me, so they're good people, right? So that's where the anti-racism comes in is that, no, you sh our expectation should not be they were not rude to me. Our expectation should be they should respect us just like anybody else. So all of this is to say, like, when you say white supremacy, where is that beast that you're going to tackle? It's not like there is a KKK organization running around in Stone Mountain, right? Or, uh, you know, yeah, I guess Proud Bus is still congreg congregating somewhere. But what is that 
specific center you we can attack because they're all now acting as though they're regular organizations. It's everywhere all the time, right? And yeah. but they are regular organizations. That's the point. Yeah. yeah. So if when this institute is up and running, if as, as I envision it, right, mm -hmm. we will have reports and studies, right? For example, sure. one would be uh, white supremacy in the judicial system, or white supremacy in housing, mm -hmm. or white supremacy in education. I mean, it, it is it is everywhere all the time because that is the way the nation was designed. It's in our DNA. Right. right? That's, just, that's just the fact of it. But the, the dilemma is this. Mm -hmm. The choice between justice and self-preservation is a false choice. It's not a choice. It's a false choice. Yeah. yeah because justice is self-preservation. Absolutely. You know? And think about it in a, in a globally competitive environment, right? Diversity should be your strongest asset. Right. And, and America is set up to be the land of many lands and people of many peoples. Mm -hmm. We just have to get this system out of the way so that America can be what it claims it wants to be. And it's really a great idea. You know, mm -hmm. it's the best idea humanity has ever seen. We just have to make it happen. Sure. So you you felt no. Um, so for me, for example, right? Right. When I was at Tulane, I was like the number two person at Tulane. Right. Mm -hmm. the last five years I was there. Sure. So I had a lot of white guys working for me, right? Working under me, reporting to me. Sure. But I'd go to meetings with them, and the people at the meeting would always assume that the guy working for me was me, was Mr. Mason, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or if I wasn't in a suit and tie and got on an elevator with people I worked with every day, they wouldn't look me in the face and, and re recognize who I was, right? And this is yeah. actual experiences. You never saw anything like that. Well, I think I was... See, I think you only know what you know, and you only know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? So it is entirely possible that there might be some soft clues that were there, but I, I think the way I was, I was completely ignoring them. It is entirely possible. But then again, yeah, it is. It's subtle things, if you grow up here, you see, and yeah. from here, it might be harder to see. Exactly. That's what I mean. Because in India, when like just to be just to be clear, like in India, racism is very overt and that you basically say, OK, you are a Hindu, so you're a Muslim. Like they don't even it's not even unconscious or like implicit. It's like explicit, you know, no Muslims allowed or something, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Or there are places where they don't even let you enter or I'm a Hindu. So. Uh, I was actually wrote about this article myself saying I grew up in, in India where there is a lot of explicit conscious bias, which is part of the culture. So, you know, for me to come here and uh, understand the subtleties, <laughs> it took a couple of decades. But I think to be fair, I've been lucky and grateful because no matter you know what my color is, I have been able to build businesses, sell my products and uh, have been treated with respect for at least for my skill. Yeah. But I do understand that there is a lot of I only know what I know, right? So I've only been I'm only looking at the people that have given me business, regardless of my color. I have not I haven't paid a account on people who have not given me business, you know. You know, that's that's kind of the where I'm going. But I, I understand, like I think uh, if nothing else, I've been doing a lot of research myself to try and figure out where the 
systemic issues are. And the question I have for you is that like there is a lot of, regardless of where we are today, there are, there are problems. However, you know, when you look at where we are as a country today, and especially when compared to three weeks ago, we now have an African-American vice president. Biden has assembled the most diverse cabinet, more diverse than America itself. He has the first gay secretary. He has the first African-American vice president, Hispanic for DHS secretary. So regardless, there is extreme amount of diversity in his cabinet. And I do know that that is not to say that racism can be just clicked on a you know, there's a button you can click and racism will go away. But if the executive branch of the country is more diverse, will that be a good step in the right direction for us to start making incremental changes? Or is it just a small step, you know, in one direction? Well, uh, you know, time will tell, right? You know, we may be at an, at a tipping point in America. I don't know. But I think one of the things that happened with Obama, for example, was the level of expectation of having a black president was really higher than the president could deliver on for black people, right? Yeah. <laughs> because he's institutionally constrained. And, you know, as president of the United States, he's part of that system. He has to be. Barun right? and I talked about it. Sorry, I mean to interrupt you, but I think I want to definitely expand on, I want you to expand on this concept because I feel like Obama suffered with the same systemic racism problem that a white president would suffer because he wanted to, I felt like he was not comfortable being a black president. He was much more comfortable being a non-black president, whether it was white or half white, I don't know. But because if you look at his cabinet, it wasn't diverse. I don't remember any explicit racially sensitive legislations that Obama has taken on that a typical white president wouldn't have taken on. Do you agree with that? Or, you know, did he suffer with it? Or was it part of the system? Well, I, but I've learned that there's a lot of things that define people. Mm -hmm. Color is not on, top on the list. I mean, look, yeah. at, look at Clarence Thomas. You know, those perspectives, look at the head of the Proud Boys. He's a, he's a Afro-Cuban, right? Ali Alexander? Yeah. But my point is that, look, it's not coincidental that Ob Obama was biracial. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's coincidental that uh, Kamala is Jamaican and Indian, right? Right. Uh, there's sort of steps in, it. I mean, it, look, it's fine. It's like a duck on the, on the lake, you know, on top on the surface, the duck is calm as hell, but at the bottom, his feet are <laughs> churning away, you know, underneath where you Yo. can't see it. And so America still does what it does. You know, we're not post-racial, we're not post-supremacy. We are, we are a work in progress, and I try to be direct in my language because I think I've gotten to the point where that is the best, maybe the only way now to further the work. Sure. Because we've learned to talk around it, you know, evade the true topic because white supremacy doesn't want you to talk about it. I agree. I agree. I think there is no, there is no hiding anymore. I would have not had this conversation. I would not have the courage to have this conversation if the insurrection did not happen three weeks ago, now I'm like, no, there's, we are having it. You tried to destroy America and American democracy, we are gonna talk about you too. <laughs> so, but uh, this is an interesting discussion. When you look at the statistics of the country, right? Uh, we're already in this mode where Hispanics are the second most 
the Hispanics are now the biggest minority. I think the, from the statistics I'm seeing, 2040 Caucasians will not be the majority anymore. So in this shift, how will the racial dynamic change? Will it become more virulent that the self-preservation will get into more aggressive mode or will they become more accepting? What are your predictions in the next 20 years? I have no idea. All I can do is show up every day and keep working, right? <laughs> well, that's why I think your initiatives like Institute for White Supremacy are powerful. Yeah, well, but here's the thing, though. Remember, white people will still be the, the majority minority, okay? Right. White people are not going away. Remember that Hispanics in in Florida, who are basically white Cubans, right? It was mostly white-speaking yeah. Spanish that left Cuba those are the ones that supported Trump. The racism in South America, Brazil, Colombia, is as bad or worse as it was as it is here, right? So don't, yeah. don't think everybody who we call Hispanic are all of the same mind and all of the same perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, okay, here, here's, here's my hope. Two things. Mm-hmm. One, America really does need the talent, right? And so if only because we have to figure out ways to allow more talent to rise to the top, I think that's one positive thing in our favor. I think the other positive thing is that everybody's here because they really do believe in the idea of America. Right. You know, you came here because of that, all these other people, and it's the idea that's worth fighting for. And so that, that, that's why we do what we do. That's why we educate our students, right? But it, but it is a, it is a challenge. It's a struggle. No, I think um, that's definitely amazing that you're looking at your leadership in education and taking it to a social justice moment. Obviously, I definitely commend you for your courage on taking this topic that nobody wants to talk about and uh, take it head on and be very explicit about it. Obviously, you know, you were on Varun, my son's podcast, where he they talk about all these things every day. In fact, I'm inspired by their courage, and I will do my part to be explicit. So I want to ask the last question about education and this role in bridging this socioeconomic divide. Because I think the issue that I have with pure labor education is that we are providing tools for African-Americans or socially disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged people to get into the system better. You know, we have a, call it affirmative action, call it more access or whatever, but we are not doing a good job retaining them on campuses because we are ignoring their needs on campus. That's why there are abysmal graduation rates. What can presidents and chancellors and leaders learn from you in this retention problem where we are dropping off over 70% of African-Americans within the first year of college. Yeah, well, and it's even worse now with COVID, mm-hmm. but you, you have to go back a little further, go back to first grade and see how many we lose from first grade to 12th grade. Because people usually start counting, you know, when, when they graduate from high school, graduation rate high school, but we start losing them very early in the pipeline. Having said that, there was a phrase you used that I was surprised you said it about, uh, I think it was something like uh, ignoring the needs of, I don't think we ignore the needs. Mm-hmm. I think Sorry. we do I think we do to the best to address them with what we have to work with, okay? Yeah, um, I agree. I didn't mean it that, I didn't mean it as though that we're ignoring the needs, but we're putting a lot of effort in getting them into college, 
but it is harder to keep them because of whatever concerns they have. Well, let me, so let me how do you fix that? Put in a plug for, for me and my HBCUs, right? Sure. So when we got to Jackson State, the graduation rate was uh, 27%. By the time mm -hmm. we left, it was about 48%, okay? At UDC, it, it's an interesting story at UDC because we are technically an open enrollment institution. Mm -hmm. And so our graduation rate looks low for a four-year institution that has admission standards. Sure. But if you separate out our bachelor's degree graduation rate, it's actually up in the 40%. So, so we've been creeping up as well. But it could be better. It should be better. And we know what it takes. You, well, you know what it takes. <laughs> you, you've designed products that, that help intervene in a, in a positive way to understand where the student is, what they need, address mm -hmm. their concerns and needs. And that's what we're doing. By the way, I'm sorry we weren't able to, to, hook you, to work with you yet, but I still, <laughs> still, still want to make it happen. Sure, uh, But it's taken us five years with the resources we have to slowly but surely put some of the systems in place that we need in order to be able to do the work. And yep. so it's not that we don't want to address the needs. It's just a high level of needs uh, because the damage is done. The resources are not enough to support. And the resources the are not enough to, to do it the way you want to do it as quickly as possible, right? Well, let's definitely work together to increase that pipeline and increase the resources. Dr. Mason, it has been an exciting discussion, very thought-provoking. I really appreciate your time. I hope you join us again when you kick off your new institute or before that, you're always welcome on the podcast. Always good to see you, Karen. I'm glad to see you doing well. You're a good man. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End -End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2n services.com that's podcast at n number two n services.com thank you